I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship with your host, Claudia Pauls. Dan Moyle here with I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, and we are at the CAS area library for a vigil tonight live here in Cass County. We'll hear names of victims read in memoriam. We'll hear stories of domestic violence here in honor of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So as we are here, our hope is that you take something from this, that you are inspired, that you find some hope and maybe find some help as well. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. If you'd like to come and and gather around, I think we're gonna try to get started with our our event tonight. My name's Rose Ludwig. I'm the Executive Director for Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. And I wanna welcome all of you tonight and thank you so much for being here and for um, helping us to remember people who have, individuals who have been victimized and have subsequently lost their lives due to um, violence at the hands of an intimate partner. So just a couple of things I wanted to point out, um, just a couple of statistics. Almost one out of five or 16% of murder victims in the U.S. were killed by an intimate partner. Women account for two out of three murder victims killed by intimate partners. And nearly one in three female homicide victims that are reported to police or reported by police records are killed by an intimate partner. So while the country focuses on death and injury from auto accidents, health ailments, and drug abuse, a shocking number of deaths and injuries are a result of domestic and inter intimate partner violence. Almost one third of all female homicide victims are killed by an intimate partner, like I just said. Tens of thousands of women and men have died and hundreds of thousands have been injured at the hands of their abuser over the last few decades. So with that said, I wanna thank you for coming and um, remembering the names of those who have, who have lost their lives at the hands of intimate partners. Um, I do believe that it's a public health crisis, domestic violence, and um, I, I'm glad that we still are observing Domestic Violence Awareness Month and bringing awareness to the, to the subject, to not being able to be afraid to talk about it, to give voice to those who feel powerless, who can't, who, who can't or may not have the voice to, to lend to um, talk, telling their stories or sharing their, you know, being able to become survivors, that they're no longer victimized, but that now they're survivors. And unfortunately, the names that we're going to read tonight are just a small portion of those individuals that have lost their lives, but I appreciate you coming out to honor those. So I'm going to hand it over to the Mistress of Ceremonies, and uh, we'll get started. Thank you. Good evening, my name is Deborah Hackworth and I am the Director of Advocacy Services for Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. We're going to start with an invocation by Pastor Rita Reed from Faith Bible Church in Jones, Michigan. All right, thank you, Debbie. If you would bow your head with me as we pray. Almighty God, tonight we are gathered here in your presence to acknowledge and to support all who have suffered abuse at the hands of someone who should have loved them. Also to support families who have experienced loss as a result of domestic violence. We are asking you, Father, to surround us and them with your care and protect them by your loving might. Father, permit them 
to feel your love and to enjoy health, healing, wholeness, and strength. Almighty God, I ask that you give us peace and that you give us love. And most of all, I pray that they feel your presence and be comforted and find confidence in the love that you have for us. Amen. Thank you, and um, I'd like to um, acknowledge those who are here who um, helped put this together. Um, Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services, we've been around since 1984 um, doing this work of um, helping survivors and victims find safety. Um, one partner who has been with us almost since 1984, if not since 1984, is the Honorable Judge Dobridge. She has been, um, she is and has been a great partner in this fight with us. Um, she brought the fight to Cass County and said, I'm going to stand up for and with um, victims of domestic violence. She. Um, it's just a great champion for victims um, across the board. And so we're, we are honored to have you here. We're honored to have you in our county. You're my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, the members of law enforcement who are here. Thank you very much for coming out. Um, we appreciate the work that you do. It's because of you that we are able to, um, especially here in Cass County from the Sheriff's Department and from the Wajak Police Department who are represented here, you are the ones who give us the calls that alert us to who the victims are and so that we can go out and provide services for those victims. So thank you very much. Also, there's the prosecutor's office who is here, Tiffany Vowinkle and Devante. <laughs> Thank you for being here, um, being great partners with us, um, finding justice or pursuing justice for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault of all ages. I appreciate um, the work that you do. We have um, Hope Anderson here from um, the county. She's our county treasurer. And one more time, Cynthia Gillum. Thank you also. She's from our county also. Thank you for being here. Um, I'll introduce you guys <laughs> in a minute. Uh, I hope I'm not also. Um, our victim's advocate for the county that works in the prosecutor's office, Marie Anderson, who's been so faithful in helping. They asked me, they said, what about the names? I said, that's Marie's job. <laughs> I have no idea. But Marie has been so faithful in doing this for all these years. I do appreciate it. And, of course, the team that um, from domestic and sexual abuse services who do this work day in and day out, um, they don't get tired. They don't complain. If you guys would raise your hands so everyone knows who you are. We have Jessica Pius. She's our PPO advocate in the prosecutor's office. Elizabeth Alderson, who's um, our therapist. Jess uh, Jessica, again, no. Kelly King. <laughs> Kelly is our Cass County um, DV advocate. We have Alyssa Collier, who is our sexual assault advocate. Krista DeBoer, who's our sexual assault therapist. Our illustrious leader, <laughs> Rose Partial. And then we have um, people who volunteer for us. And um, we appreciate you being here. And people who have retired but still stay connected, we appreciate you guys being here. <laughs> okay, so moving right along, um, I want to introduce our first speaker. Her name is um, Margie Hatzel. And Margie um, has just changed the way we look at so many things in the county over the um last few years and she's been a voice for victims and for children she's um, led the way of bringing in speakers that to educate not um, just a few but the whole community and so 
um, when planning the um, vigil, I, w I was like, Margie, I'd like for you to speak, not knowing um, that what her story was or how powerful it would be. I just knew she would have something good to say. And the more we get to know each other, the more we like each other and, and fi just find out um, what all that she has to offer. So without further ado, Margie Hassel. I'm thinking about moving into the office in uh, Dwajak. I like it so much. Hi, everybody. Um, again, my name is Margie Hojira Hadsall. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, am I getting feedback on this? Is it me? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm the director of the Great Start Collaborative in Cass County. I've been there for three years, and. Um, it's been a, just a fantastic opportunity for me. We've been working really hard, as Deborah said, in the collaborative, along with all the great partners, many of whom are here, to help create and bring some common understanding to Cass County about important issues that undermine the success of the children in the county. Really children everywhere, but we just are really working hard in Cass County. Issues like trauma, like inequity due to race, poverty, or gender. Um, those things are extremely important. We have to understand those things. We have to have some strategies if we're going to help the kids really thrive. Um, we need to do better. We need to be better for the children of the county. And I've been learning. I'm not like an expert in this. I've been learning from a lot of the people here, and I've been learning right alongside everyone else. Um, and I'm sure that we have a great infrastructure now and that learning is going to continue. I'm kind of on my way out the door, um, um, trying anyway to get out the door. And um, I, I've learned some really important lessons. And um, I've learned how trauma can hurt people for many years. That it doesn't, it's not just something that happens and then everybody moves on. I've also learned though that people who have been really traumatized that they can develop resilience and they can recover and that is extremely important so just a little bit about me I was born and I grew up in Berrien County um, my dad's side of this family actually moved to Cass County my great-great-grandfather moved here in 1850 and we don't know why <laughs> Deborah and I have some thoughts about why um, we had some conversation about it and Kelly um, but I was brought up in Berrien County and um, I was fortunate enough to attend the University of Notre Dame I graduated in the second class of women Notre Dame I have a pioneer plaque that they sent me which I do not display because I don't really want anybody to know how old I am um, it was a very interesting experience so when I got out of school, although I had majored in theater and speech, I, was, I had been teaching horseback riding for years and riding horses. And I felt really comfortable staying with that. And so that's what I did. I rode horses and taught people and worked with some fantastic people, traveled all over the United States, and it was really wonderful. And it was during that time um, when I was going across the country to these horse shows that I met this man who was going to alter my life for really, I, I hate to say this, but probably for almost 20 years, his impact on me was uh, so great. He was this really handsome guy. So I have to be forgiven for some of this, I guess, right? He was handsome. For those of you who remember um, cigarette commercials, do you remember the Marlboro Man? So that's who he looked like. He was tall, he was big, he had a, you know big jeans and big hat and, um, and I really fell for him. I really fell for him. And he followed me home to Michigan. I lived in Sturgis at the time. And, um, and we were married like six weeks later. So he put a lot of pressure on me to commit. And uh, despite my better judgment, um, I thought, well, you know, this guy really loves me. And, you know, he really loves me. He thinks that this is going to work. And so I married him. And uh, I didn't know at that time I didn't really know anything about this I didn't know that one of the signs of, of batterers is that they um, they put pressure on people to commit to kind of put them in a box so 
you know, I kind of went into this marriage really openly and in like quickly it became a nightmare um, of physical abuse and emotional abuse, like, like constant. <laughs> I mean, so we'd have a couple days when, when he was okay and he was loving and then he would be threatening me and he would be degrading me and I never knew when he was going to snap and really do something that threatened my life. I was always just scared to death. And it was this up and down stuff that was really hard for me. Um, and he, he somehow kept me pretty isolated from my family. And, um, and he, he was certainly very isolated himself. So it just was this, this routine of anger and violence and then retreat and this really, oh, you know, I love you, I love you. And, it, and then the other thing was all this blame that um, he blamed me for it. And he said, you're terrible at being married. You're awful at this. If you would just be better at being married, I would be better. And so I took this as my, as, as my responsibility. And um, he said that I was forcing him to be angry. And, and he threw things, he threw, broke things. He threw me once out a window. And um, I didn't tell anybody. Um, I worked with my stepfather, who was a real hero in this story for me, and I didn't reach out to them because I was so embarrassed. You know, I had made this huge mistake, which I think everybody kind of said, are you sure you should do this? And I was, I was embarrassed, and so I just uh, kept it to myself. Um, I suffered. I made excuses for him. I, made, I walked on eggshells, and I worried, and I was scared all the time all the time. Um, so fortunately it came to an end. Um, so I went, we went to a wedding of a friend and I think it was in Menden actually. Um, and um, it, was a, it was just a great time. I was in the wedding. It was a great time for me, not so much for the relationship. And he started, uh, he pulled off the road and he started hitting me in the car. And um, somebody saw him hitting me and beating me and called the police, thank God. And the police came and took him away. And um, I didn't press charges, right, because I, I didn't. Um, but I did go to work the next day. And I told you I worked with my stepfather. And he saw me. And he saw my face was just, I was just, I was just bruised and beaten. And emotionally, you know, of course, just completely done in. And he just said, we've got to go call your mom. We've got to get a plan. Let's get, to, let's get a plan and call my mom's librarian. She looked it all up in the library. And she said, this is what we've got to do. So um, I confronted him the next day. And I said, um, uh, I said, this, this is not going to work. I'm, I'm going to ask you to leave. And then I left. And then I never saw him again. I'm sure we're all glad about, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so then the rest of the story, the thing that was so long lasting for me was that then, for, then I immediately rushed into another relationship that was a great, kind man, very safe. He was, he was kind of a family favorite. So I said, obviously this is the right thing for me to do. And I got married and, and I stayed married for about 10 years. But I was, it was not me, I was so numb, and I was so, um, I just thought I was, a, I just didn't think I was, I was worth anything. And that was this long lasting impact of this. I just thought that I couldn't make a good decision, so I just had to put my head down and just sort of not be myself. Um, and then that, about 10 years after that, we got divorced, and I went into therapy, um, and that made all the difference in my life because I started unpacking and uncovering and reassessing and learned how to look at myself um, as, a, as a different human being. I, I, uh, um, I, I realized all the self-blame and the ne negative self-talk were really not me, that I was much more worthy than that. I was worthy of some happiness. Um, 
and success, that I was smart, that I was capable. I had all this ability that I had just put my head down and just kind of like a turtle, I just kind of uh, put my head back in my shell. Um, and so, and therapy really started me on that journey. That I will thank that therapist till the, the end of my life for just helping me start to take those things off, to see myself as a good person. I remember her saying to me at one point, you know, I would be, I would be sad, to, I would be sad too. I, I would feel just like you in that situation. It, it validated me in a way that I had never, I'd never been really open to anyone and, and, and I, I started to see myself differently. So, um, that I had been victimized and that I had, did not make it happen and I think that was the thing that was the hardest for me. So then, I, uh, I was so happy, with, I was so grateful for counseling. I thought, this is really something I'd like to do. So I went to graduate school, I became a counselor. I got a job like almost when I was still, I think I didn't even have my degree and I got a job as a counselor for Michigan Rehab Services. I worked for them for 22 years, ended up in the state office as a state division administrator. And, um, and, and the other thing I did, which I didn't really think about, I didn't write it in my speech, but just the idea that I, um, I also went back to horses and started to see horses as a vehicle for change and a vehicle for, um, uh, to help people with traumatic stress issues. And horses are the best at that. It's amazing how horses are emotionally connected to people. Um, I actually came here, I teach horseback riding lessons at Therapeutic Equestrian Center in Water Elite, and that's one of the things that we do. We just, everybody, everybody kind of becomes lifted up with this association with horses. Um, so I kind of now, I've, I guess I've, I've come a full circle in my life. I'm back to my home area. I'm ready to retire, if I can. And, uh, and I've had this opportunity in Cass County to bring, to be part of bringing education and support to others in their journey. And, and to bring these issues of trauma, to let people see that trauma isn't like one event, that, that there's, uh, there are a lot of different things that constitute trauma and a lot of things that, um, uh, that people can do to recover. And, um, and for me, the other is to support great organizations like DASIS, where um, they make, they're making a difference um, and I just want to say how grateful I am for my association with you guys and so grateful that you're here helping people. So thank you. Thank you, Margie. And we're going to keep holding on to you for as long as we can. She is a part of our um, task force on family violence that meets monthly at the courthouse. And she's been such a great asset. And so we're just going to keep holding on to her. Um, I forgot one person. This is one of my favorite people in the whole world. She's, she's a renegade. She is the advocate that you want on her side if you have experienced some injustice. That's Rebecca Shetterly. She's been in this fight with me. She actually um, trained me. She was part of my training. And so thank you for being here, Rebecca. Okay, next um, we have... Um, Dan Moyle. Dan is um, a great friend, a great partner. He's a member of our board. He is um, our executive producer on our podcast. And he's here to talk to us about um, victims that aren't often um, talked about. A light isn't shined on the subject of male victims um, or male survivors. And so thank you, Dan, for coming. And um, please welcome Dan Moyle. Thank you, Deb. So men aren't the problem, but men are the solution. I didn't fully understand this statement before I got involved with domestic and sexual abuse services, or DASIS. But my time in the recording booth with our podcast team has opened my eyes to so much. First of all, it's, it's normal for us to talk about victims with female pronouns because so many domestic violence victims we see are women in the world and their assailants are the men. 
fact, you can see the shirt that I'm wearing, Walk a Mile in Her Shoes, because we talk about her as the victim. But we know that victims aren't only women. Men are victims too, at the hands of both female and male abusers. Secondly, I thought about this and through the interviews with survivors and experts in this organization, I've learned that as a man, I don't need to feel ashamed or shunned because my gender is the one who's so often violent. This isn't an organization or a movement that's against men. Organizations like DASIS are here to support men just as we support women. We want to put a stop to intimate partner violence by shining that light, as Deb mentioned, on it. It's not okay to take the power away from a partner or other relationship. It's not manly to control others. And I want to speak to the men out there in particular. If you're a man in an abusive relationship, it's important to know that you're not alone. We see you and we hear you and we're here for you. Abusive men happens far more often than you might expect in both heterosexual and same-sex relationships. It happens to men from all cultures, from all stations in life, regardless of age or occupation. However, men are often reluctant to report that abuse because they feel embarrassed, they fear they won't be believed, or they're scared that their partner might take revenge. Domestic violence against men can take many forms, including emotional, sexual, and physical abuse, and threats of abuse. Abusive relationships always involve an imbalance of power and control. An abuser uses intimidating or harmful words, intimidation, behaviors, to control his or her partner. And it might not be easy for us to recognize as men domestic violence against other men or against ourselves, because early in the relationship, that partner might seem attentive, generous, and protective in ways that only later turn out to be controlling or even frightening. So here's a few things to think about. You might be expecting domestic violence men if your partner calls you names, insults you, or puts you down, prevents you from going to work or school, stops you from seeing family or friends, tries to control how you spend money, where you go, what you wear, acts jealous or possessive or constantly accuses you of being unfaithful, gets angry when drinking alcohol or using drugs, hits, kicks, shoves, slaps, chokes, or otherwise hurts you physically, or your children or your pets, blames you for his or her violent behavior, or tells you that you deserve it, or forces you to have sex or engage in sexual acts against your will. When they blame you, please don't take that blame. You see, you may not be sure whether you're the victim or the abuser sometimes, because it's common for survivors of domestic violence to act out verbally or physically against their abuser, yelling sometimes, pushing or hitting him or her during those conflicts. The abuser may use such incidents then to manipulate you, describing them as proof that you are indeed the abusive partner. You may have even developed unhealthy behaviors. Many survivors do. It's not just you. That doesn't mean that you are at fault for the abuse. If you're having trouble identifying what's happening, take a step back and look at the larger patterns in your relationship. Then review the signs of domestic violence that we just went over. In an abusive relationship, the person who routinely uses those behaviors, they are the abuser, not you. You're the person on the receiving end of that abuse. You're the victim here. And even if you're still not sure, seek help anyway. Intimate partner violence causes physical and emotional damage no matter what side that person's on. And if you're gay, bisexual, or transgender, you can experience domestic violence and abuse if you're in a relationship with someone who threatens to tell your friends, family, colleagues, or community members your sexual orientation or your gender identity. They may tell you that authorities won't help someone who's gay, bisexual, or transgender. They may tell you that leaving the relationship means that you're admitting that gay, bisexual, or transgender relationships are deviant. They use these things against you. They justify abuse by telling you that you're not really gay, bisexual, or transgender. And they may say that men are just naturally violent. None of this is true. Regardless of gender, Ending a relationship, even an abusive one, is rarely easy. And it becomes even harder if you've been isolated from friends and family, threatened, manipulated, controlled, or physically and emotionally beaten down. 
You may feel that you have to stay in the relationship due to any of these reasons. You feel ashamed. Many men feel great shame that they've been abused, been unable to stand up for themselves, or somehow failed in their role as a male, as a man, as a husband or father. Your religious beliefs may dictate that you stay or your self-worth is so low that you feel this abusive relationship is all you deserve. You may feel that there's a lack of resources. Many men worry that they'll have difficulty being believed by the authorities or that their abuse will be minimized because they're male or they may find there are few resources to specifically help abused men. And these are all myths. You may feel that you need to stay in that relationship because you're in a same-sex relationship but haven't come out to your family or friends and you're afraid that your partner will out you. Or you may be in denial. Just as with domestic abuse, domestic violence victims who are female, they deny that there is a problem in their relationship and it will only prolong the abuse. You may still love your partner when they're not being abusive and you may believe that they will change or you can help them. But change can only happen once your abuser takes full responsibility for their behavior and seeks professional treatment. And if you have children together, you may worry that, that you need to protect your children. You may worry that if you leave, your spouse will harm your children or prevent you from having access to them. Obtaining custody of children is always challenging for fathers, but even if you are confident that you can do so, you may still feel overwhelmed at the prospect of raising them alone. These sound familiar? You are not alone. We see you. Domestic violence and abuse can have a serious physical and psychological impact. The first step is protecting yourself and stopping the abuse is to reach out. Talk to a friend, family member, or someone else you trust, or call a domestic violence helpline. Admitting the problem and seeking help does not mean that you have failed as a man or as a husband or a father. You are not to blame and you are not weak. As well as offering a sense of relief and providing some much needed support, Sharing details of your abuse can also help begin the healing process and of building a case against your abuser. And if you're looking for help and need advice or advocacy, I want to encourage you to call 911 first if it's an emergency, but then please reach out to DASIS. We're here to help. Our 24-hour hotline is 800-828-2023 and our website, dasismi.org. Domestic violence against men can have devastating effects. Although may, you may not be able to stop your partner's abusive behavior, you can seek help. Remember that no one deserves to be abused. I encourage everyone to listen to our podcast, I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, for hope, insight, and encouragement, men and women alike. Thank you for being here tonight. Okay, so now um, we're going to, um, if those who are going to read names would begin to line up, up here, um, starting here and going that way, and we're going to distribute the candles also. And we are also live streaming this um, our vigil tonight on um, on Facebook and so if you know of someone who's a survivor particularly male survivors um, share this with them um, like our page share the post and so that um, these victims will know that they're not alone and that there's um, help for what they're going through okay The names included on this list are those of women, children, and men who died starting in 1971 through this year. The women, children, and men listed all died because of the determination and desperation of one individual to maintain power and control over another. Please help us remember those whose lives were taken and to emphasize the need for continued efforts to
to stop domestic and sexual violence. Roberta Millard from Menden, April 23, 1971, died at the hands of her husband, Winston Millard. She was the mother of six children. Annie Mae Washington, 38, from Three Rivers, 1977, killed by her live-in boyfriend, Lank Thomas. Carl Harmon from Sturgis, 1978, killed by his daughter's boyfriend, Thomas Baker. Lonnie Franks from Leonidas, 1980, killed by an acquaintance, James Alexander. Donald Ray and Edith Davis from Three Rivers, 1980, killed by their son, Donnie Davis, in their home. Tommy Fields from Three Rivers, 1981, killed by his wife after a long history of domestic violence within the relationship. Pauline Christine Alby from Constantine, 1981, murdered by her husband, Richard Wayne Alby, while their children were present in the home. Brenda Runyon from, from St. Joseph County, 1982, sexually assaulted and murdered by Paul Bell after a brief relationship. Leota Marquart, 71, from Edwardsburg, February 1984, killed by her estranged husband, who then killed himself. <clears throat> Jennifer Tyson from Sturgis, 1984, was murdered as an infant by her mother's boyfriend, James Eversole. The child died of injuries consistent with shaken baby syndrome. Linda Van Buskirk from Three Rivers, 1985, was stalked by an acquaintance, Ricky Moore, who then killed her while she was jogging near her home. Pauline Hall's House, 74, and her sister Mildred Hack, 70, from Three Rivers, April 1986, killed by Pauline's 81-year-old husband, who then took his own life. Frances Harker, 53, from Sturgis, April 1986, killed by Douglas Riddle, an acquaintance of the family. Sandra Ely, 36, from Constantine, March 1988, killed by her husband while at home with their three young children. He then killed himself. Kathy Schwartz, 19, Three Rivers, December 1988, was sexually assaulted and then murdered in her apartment when her with her infant child present, the case remains unsolved. Marcia Cosart, 36, from Sturgis, 1989, killed by her boyfriend, Leonard Rajewski. She was the mother of two children. Catherine Young from Centerville was killed by her nephew, Rex Cutchall, in 1989. Anna House Manis from Three Rivers, 1990, was killed by her husband while living in the Latvian Center near Three Rivers. He then killed himself. Martin Keeley from Nottawa, 1990, was killed by his son, Larry Keeley, who was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Deborah Roberts, 33, from Vandalia, was killed July 1990 by her boyfriend. She was survived by two children. Rosalie Bowsman, 21, from Cassopolis, was murdered by her close friend in 1991. Chris Dimmick, 27, from Kalamazoo, February of 1991, was murdered by her boyfriend. Stephen Rose, eight months, from Cass County, December 1991, died at the hands of his father. Brian Ligon, 17, from Three Rivers, killed by his mother's boyfriend, William Duckin. Lois Krantz, 40, from Kalamazoo, July 1992, was abducted and killed by her husband. Lois was seven months pregnant and left behind three children. Louis Strang, 25, from Sturgis, October 1993, was killed by his wife, Joanne Strang, he was survived by a daughter. Norman Hicks, 22, from Three Rivers, 1993. Killed by his girlfriend, he was survived by a son. Becky Stowe, age 15, from Niles, in 1993. Murdered by her boyfriend. Her body was then found in 1995. Lady Monique Conley, aged three, from Three Rivers, November 1994, died of asphyxiation. Both of her parents were convicted in this case. 
Andrew Mitchell, age two, from Cassopolis, December 1994, killed by his father, Michael Mitchell. Talisha Melton, age seven years, from Centerville, in 1995, she was killed by her mother, Hope Melton. Carol Knepp from Montville, February 1996, murdered by three acquaintances of her husband. Vanessa Hicks, age 12, Ginger Hicks, age seven, Erica Hicks, age three, all from Vicksburg in February 1997, died in a house fire set by their father, who also died in the fire. James and Honoree Schumann from Three Rivers, 1997, killed by their 17-year-old son, Douglas Schumann. Brittany Beers, age six, of Sturgis, September 1997. Brittany was last seen sitting on a bench in front of her home in Sturgis. She vanished and has never been found. The case remains unsolved. Carlene Reykjavitz Kane, age 36 from Burr Oak, 1997, killed by her boyfriend, who then committed suicide a few days later. She left behind three children. Dr. Harvey Wilkes, in 1998, killed by his estranged wife, who then killed herself. Dr. Wilkes was the medical examiner for St. Joseph County for several years in the 1990s. Charles Clark, 1998, killed by his wife, Brenda Clark. Charles is survived by a daughter. Maggie Ann Coleman, 16 from Paw Paw, September 1998, killed by her ex-boyfriend who then killed himself. Monica Voits, formerly of Three Rivers, 1999, killed by her husband at her Oregon home. She is survived by two children who were raised by her parents in the Three Rivers area. Pearl Evans, 48 from Decatur, March 2000, died two months after sustaining extensive injuries that were inflicted by her husband, Lawrence Evans. Keith Driscoll, 41, his wife Kimberly Driscoll, 39, and their son Corey Driscoll, 12, from Marcellus, May of 2000. The family was killed by their son, brother, Keith Driscoll, Jr. Keith, Jr. later committed suicide. Penny Sue Glore, 41, from Sturgis, June 2000, killed by her husband, James Glore, who then committed suicide. Jeanette K. Kelly, 42, from Portage, August 2000, killed in her home by her former boyfriend, Dale McNeil, who then killed himself. Her two daughters escaped as a result of a safety plan their mother had made. George Pluta, 47, from Pawpaw, August 2000, killed by John Petrie. His, girlfriend, his girlfriend's estranged husband, Petrie, committed suicide when police arrived. Diane Lynn Kane, 39, from Pokagon Township, Cass County, November 2000, killed by her husband, Gregory Kane. He subsequently committed suicide. Beverly Mitchell, 36, and her sister, Barbara Lonsberry, 44, from Niles, July 2001. Barbara and her sister were killed by Beverly's husband, Larry Mitchell, who then shot himself. Her sister's 14-year-old daughter and stepdaughter witnessed the murders. Beverly was the mother of two girls. Catherine Schrock, 46, of Cassopolis, August 2001, killed by her husband, Dennis, who then shot himself. Catherine left behind two children. Lori Dean, 39, from Kalamazoo, September 2001, killed by her live-in boyfriend, Dennis Wolfe. Tamika L. Taylor, 27, from Kalamazoo, September 2002, killed by her ex-boyfriend, Antoine Moore, and his girlfriend, Aisha Rashida Mohammed. Tamika was the mother of two small children who were raised by Tamika's mother in Three Rivers. Linda Teeters, 49, from Sturgis, March 2003, killed by her live-in boyfriend of two months, Stephen Bowder. Linda was survived by th her three children and three grandchildren. Deborah Moore Foster, 50, from Battle Creek, March 2004, killed by her husband, Robert Foster. Deborah had filed for divorce earlier in the year and had obtained a PPO against Foster. 
He had been in court earlier charged with violating the PPO. Austin Singleton, two, from Niles, November 2004, killed by his father, Donald Parks. Matthew Morales, 36, from Battle Creek, 2005, killed by his 38-year-old girlfriend. Matthew is survived by his two daughters. Denise Simpson, 41, from Dwajak, 2007, killed by her estranged husband, Michael Simpson, who then killed himself. She was a mother of two children. Jody Parak, 11, from Constantine, November 2007, was abducted, abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered by Daniel Furlong, a person unknown to her in the community. Calista Springer, 15, from Centerville, February 2008, died in a house fire, chained to her bed as a result of undetected and ongoing child abuse by her father, Anthony, and stepmother, Marcia Springer. Venus Rose Stewart, 32, from Colon, April 2010, abducted and murdered by her estranged husband, Douglas Stewart. Venus was the mother of two daughters. Dennis Brooks, 35, from Burr Oak, March 2014, killed by his ex-girlfriend, Maria Williams. Dennis was the father of six children. Laura Steinbeck, 42, from Dwajak, May 2015, killed by her husband. She was the mother of three children. Alan Robert Crego, 59, from Edwardsburg, Michigan, March 2017, killed by his son, Joseph Crego. Shane Richardson, 29, from Constantine, July 2017, killed by his wife's ex-husband, Zachary Patton, at the time of his death, Shane's wife, Kalina, was expecting their first child together. Lori Norman, 30, from Three Rivers, March 2019. Her live-in boyfriend, Randall Miller, has been charged with her murder and is still awaiting trial. Kelly Jean Warner Miller, 43, from Sturgis, May 2019. Her live-in boyfriend, Wade Allen, has been charged with her murder and is still awaiting trial. Tanya Clark, 49, from Dowajak, August 2019, killed by her husband, Jason Clark, who then killed himself. The son of the couple found his parents. Listing the horrific acts perpetrated against these victims does not convey the complicated experience of torment and violence that they experienced. These stories also cannot reveal to us all the ways that victims have protected their children, reached out to various members of the system for help. It does not explain how long they were afraid or how often they begged not to be hurt or screamed for help, or screamed for help before their life ended. These images help renew our determination to continue working toward a world free of domestic violence. Our thoughts are with the families and loved ones of these mentioned here tonight and all those others in our country who have died at the hands of those who profess to love them. Now if we can observe a moment of silence. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all once again for coming. Thank you for lending your voice, lending your time to honor those who lost their lives as a result of domestic violence. Um, on the back of the names list, if you take one of the ones that are the folded booklet, it has our um, agency information, the services that we offer and also the 800 number. If you know of someone, if you think of you, 
that you know of someone who's in need of help, um, take our card, take our information. If you can get it to them safely, please do. We are here to help 24 hours, seven days a week. Um, we have some other um, things going on this month. Next Tuesday, we'll be having our candlelight vigil in Centerville at the courthouse. On um, the 19th, we'll be having our um, masquerade gala to raise funds so we can continue to do this service to helping survivors that will be in Sturgis. That information is over there. And also on um, October 29th, we will be having a community forum where we're talking about domestic violence and co-occurring issues, all the things that survivors are facing along with the fact that they are also victims of domestic violence, which makes getting safe and um, breaking free from violence even harder. Thank you again for coming out. Please visit our table and pick up resources and also um, help yourself to some cookies and cider. Thank you again. Good night. And while hearing those names is so difficult, it's also important to remember them, to keep their families in mind, as you've heard so many have children left behind or parents who had to bury their children. So these vigils are important. So if you get a chance to go to a vigil in your town, please do. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.